listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. we can recognize that ego is alive and well is if we consider our preferences what our preferences might be and as odd as this sounds it's something that we all can immediately connect with this isn't a bad thing it's just a way of recognizing where ego dances so we can look at style we can look at politics. We can look at music. Wherever we have preferences, okay, we can become very, very aware of where our ego is doing its thing. I also have pointed out repeatedly that... Uh, Ego, I mean, what you can do is actually use these preferences and your awareness of them to, uh, you follow them and you're going to get right into your attachments. And attachments are the source of our suffering. Preferences, therefore, by the, the way I'm using it here in this, this uh, intro part of the talk, preferences are um, attachment light. Okay? So... Looking at these, having the ability to study these attachments of ours really helps us unlock or disidentify or let go of the things that are really, really kind of pulling at us. So consider a preference that you have. Just consider it. Don't look at it as good or bad. Just consider it. And with that in mind, I'm going to read to you from... Uh, a little thing from Awaken This Life that I, uh, I happened upon that I thought made sense in relationship to what I wanted to discuss tonight. It's called No Preferences. And it's on page 197 for those of you keeping score at home. <laughs> Whenever you feel a judgment arise in your awareness, you are feeling the ego's energetic pull, the Zen master said to a group of us in the meditation hall. It was late in the afternoon and I was tired, worried that I might fall asleep during this lady's talk. I wasn't bored with what she was saying. I just wanted a little sleep. Any preference, she went on, can show us where our attachments are. I began to perk up at this comment. Could my judgments help me recognize and better understand my ego's pull? Could my preferences do the same thing? The fog of sleepiness began to fade a bit as I considered her comments. I was judging all the time, and I had all sorts of preferences. But something about what she was saying made sense at a level that was new to me. My hand shot up after the talk concluded. I asked, are preferences the same as judgments? <coughs> Excuse me. I think it's helpful to see the ego as the sun in a psychological solar system. Preferences are like small planets, she said, that have an observable gravitational pull. Judgments are planets as well. They're just bigger and therefore have more pull. 
This seems so elegant, so simple. I bowed to her in gratitude. Then how do we free ourselves from all the pull? Came another question from across the hall. We're free from any and all forms of judgmental or preferential pull when we can integrate the recognition that we are at once the unlimited entirety of the universe and the limited egoic solar system. She paused and let this sink in. All things that orbit around you, she went on, start to shrink when seen from the enormity of what you really are. You'll sense this the more you sit. And then it is my hope that you'll let your enormity express itself through your life. She started to giggle and then bowed, leaving us to make friends with our enormity without any preference. The enormity of you is profound. You are the infinite manifesting in this finite time and space. You simultaneously live both truths that you are bound and small and will, you know, be born and will die, will get sick, will get old. Okay? You're that. And you're also the awareness that is eternal. You are what watches time. Therefore, you are not bound by time. You are what watches thought. Therefore, you are not bound by thought. You are what watches feeling. Therefore, you are not bound by feeling. You are at once infinite and finite. Both are true. What you do with those truths, whether you can walk between them, that middle way between them, is where the art gets created that we refer to as the name you are given. Now, as many of you know, I'm not one for getting all mystical and, um, you know, crunchy granola. I'm pretty practical as I approach this. Um, But this is big stuff. (laughs) And when we can kind of let it in, it tends to scare us away. I would encourage you in tonight's sitting that if you're feeling a little unsettled and a little frightened, get really intimate with that because it means it's working. Okay? All right? And when I say it's working, I mean that we are rattling the cage of selfhood enough to where the biggle, big, the biggle, the bigger stuff can come through. What is a biggle? Does anyone know? Smaller. It's a a bigger bagel. A bagel. Yeah. Thank you very much. (laughs) That would be Lenny, ladies and gentlemen. Very good. Very good. (laughs) Uh, All kidding aside, though, the cosmic giggle, quite honestly, just, it begins to work its way through us rather effortlessly and spontaneously when we can uh, not only have this big self-awareness, but we then let that big self-awareness kind of come through this small self-sense 
of who and what we've always thought we are. Of who and what we've always thought that person over there, that tribe over there is. What happens to preferences from that big, spacious place? There's nothing to prefer because it's all good. So fearlessly resting. Sounds odd, but fearlessly resting as the enormity of what we are uh, can be kind of unsettling to the limited sense of who we always thought we were. The ego's job is to make sure that it doesn't lose, if you will, its position of control, that it stays in control. Okay? So, whenever there is anything that threatens its sense of control, it will fight against it. And one of the most obvious ways it can do this is to establish kind of a linear relationship with preference. That linear relationship with preference is in meaning it just goes straight, straight to preference. It categorizes and compartmentalizes everything it possibly can to stabilize its experience. I like, I don't like. Both, both of those tilts, those egoic tilts, are ways that ego can maintain its position of, of uh, supremacy, if you will, in the self-system. Okay. This is right, this is wrong. This is good, this is bad. This is tasteful, this is distasteful. <clears throat> and so forth. These preferences, okay, keep ego stable. I've shared the story with you before of how um, the, uh, the wildflowers were looking so beautiful outside of Green Gulch. Uh, on a spring day, and um, uh, I was considering how, I, 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 and I know this is cultural, but as a guy, like, what true beauty to me was always, like, Dwight Clark catching Montana's pass. That was beautiful, you know, and wildflowers, who needs them except the bees, and I'm not a bee. I like the Niners, thank you. You know, it's just, it was silly kind of judgmental guy stuff going on in my head all the time but I remember on this particular day um, being raw from the four days in Sashin I only had 55 minutes between periods of Zazen uh, to run up the hill and run back down and I remember just it was so stunning it was so gorgeous it was like and it's like for the first time I'd seen the beauty of these uh, of these flowers and um, there was a Dharma talk that was given that evening and uh, this woman had come in and basically said, you know, kind of what I was thinking, but I guess was, you know, I didn't feel like really talking about. But it was like, you know, the, the wildflowers were so beautiful, I, I thought I was going to lose it. And the teacher was really specific. He said, the fact that you were able to label them, categorize and compartmentalize them as beautiful, 
probably kept you from losing it, didn't it? And she kind of paused, and I was immediately struck by that. It's like, yes, that's it. Those flowers are more beautiful than my limited definition of beauty. The enormity of those flowers was flirting with me, yet I had to just say that they were beautiful. And that (sighs) kept the ego from absolutely just losing it. The woman's knees got weak as she looked at the beauty of the flowers. And the teacher's response quite beautifully was, what would have happened if you let your knees truly weaken? What would happen if you actually saw the beauty of those flowers for what they really... Let life in at that level, and suddenly we become a different order of human being. And you better be ready for that, because not only are we able to see life's beauty in that capacity, we are also now tenderized enough to look at life's horror with that same open heart and mind. That ain't so easy. Wildflowers, easy. What's going on in Syria? Not so easy. You with me? Just kind of make sense? So this can be really unsettling to all the structures we have in place, both cultural, in my case it was, you know, guys like football less than they like wildflowers. There is a preference there. And suddenly letting that preference kind of fall away allowed for the football to be seen as beautiful and the wildflowers to be seen as beautiful, and the ugliness of the world to also be seen as perfect in its own way, because the ugliness of the world could inspire beauty in people. Stuff started to kind of fit into place intellectually at this point, but practically it also kind of takes shape in really, really beautiful ways when we start to rest in kind of equanimity without preference, without judgment, without evaluation, but just discriminating awareness. This doesn't mean, and here's where ego will go with this, the ego will immediately have the BS detectors fly up and start going, no, no, okay, wait a minute. Milk chocolate is not really chocolate, okay? (laughs) <laughs> semi-sweet and high that, that's chocolate the 70% cacao that's chocolate the other stuff yeah. white chocolate definitely not chocolate you know those preferences for me play out in really really silly ways how about you how do your preferences play out okay D how do your preferences play I'm kidding I'm totally kidding <laughs> just saw just saw her partner in crime here Fitzgerald started kind of... (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. The ego will look at this teaching, or this part of the teaching, uh, in really suspect ways. It's not that preferences should be eradicated or judgments should be eradicated. 
or attachments should be necessarily eradicated. They eradic they they open themselves the minute we bring attention to them. Okay? So there's nothing that has to be done. There's nothing that needs to be done. It just needs to be watched. We need to make situations where we or rather we need to put ourselves in all of our situations with a degree of peaked awareness that just allows for us to watch in the watching of our preferences they begin to carry less weight in the watching of our attachments they begin to loosen the enormity of what we are is beyond any and all attachments preferences judgments okay the limited scope of who we are is continually dancing with that kind of clinging walking in you know walking that middle way can oftentimes be inspired by the simplest of all mantras are you ready i've said this a lot so it's not really a surprise when stuff comes up especially if it's strongly negative or strongly positive just say wow wow has no judgment affiliated with it there's no preference affiliated with wow it's just <laughs> right wow is what allows for the knees to buckle wow is what allows for the tears to come wow is what recognizes the tragedy for all that it is wow is what allows for the the winning of the lottery to really sink in and so as much as i kind of you know I, i talk about this a great deal and i use that word wow a great deal as a guiding a guidepost in practice i think it can be so powerful it's so powerful so simple It's just about the first word that my uh, second daughter learned too. One of the greatest moments I've ever ever seen was actually I got to share this with my mom was when uh, she was staring at my mom's Christmas tree. Remember that? She's staring at the Christmas tree. She's uh one well, what? One and three or four one and 13 months or so. and she just sat there she was sitting on her little tukus there in front of this beautiful christmas tree and she just goes wow <laughs> and that's it right that's beginner's mind in the sim- most simple of always it's not not to be confused with enlightened mind okay awakening needs to have all the egoic structures that we build as teenagers sorry Uh, okay we tend to confuse the pre-egoic space of being 13 months old with the trans-egoic space of enlightenment ken wilber has called this the pre-trans fallacy it's absolutely i think really really valid want to watch out for that but at the same time the enormity of that moment for me as a father was way past what it was for her as a viewer of a cool christmas tree i'm sure it was such a cute precious reminder now do i have a preference for her absolutely 
absolutely. But my preference, my deep preference for both of my girls is that I and my wife and by extension everybody else that they ever come in contact with can help them become more awake. That's the most important thing. And that means I have to at every stage and we each at every stage have to let go of those things we love as opposed to hang on. That letting go is healthy. It's healthy. This applies to us too. Whatever you're hanging on to within most likely is diminishing your capacity to recognize the enormity of what you are. (laughs) Especially if you're hanging on to what you think is the enormity of what you are. So, let go. Be fully here. Recognize the enormity of what you really are and the smallness of what you are are both awesome. They're both great. They're both needed. Ego is needed. Ego is not to be killed. Don't endeavor to destroy ego, even if that's your preference. Okay? Don't endeavor to get to the enormity of who you are. That'll destroy its ability to make itself known through you. Just stop. Sit still. Be quiet. Look at the wildflowers. Be the wow. So, was there anything that um, that came up in your uh, dialogue that has spurred any type of uh, question? Anything, anything specific or general? I'd be happy to entertain, entertain that before we leave. Yes. Some preferences seem to be wholesome. For instance, healthy preferences. A preference to sit and meditate rather than watch television. Right, right. Or or sleep an extra forty minutes. Right. So there are aspects of the um, of the teaching that are kind of clear on this. That there are in in order to. I'm just. I'm going to kind of get a little funky with the words here, so stick with me. In order to awaken, you have to actually have some, have your foot on the pedal. And if you have no preference towards awakening as opposed to not awakening, and you're not awake, chances are you're not going to awaken. That's what I meant by the words get a little funny. In other words, preferences and attachments 
believe it or not, are very helpful in some, in some ways. Uh, I was describing letting go as being a very healthy attachment. If we were to look psychologically, for instance, at the development of children, there are healthy attachments and there are unhealthy attachments. And you can see a kid who's got a very healthy attachment with mom and with dad as opposed to a, a child that does not. Now, when we start looking at that, what, what defines that healthy attachment? Their ability to let go. All right? Isn't that interesting? And so similarly, the attachments that we start building, the attachments that we start uh, building towards practice are really, really helpful until we begin to see that those attachments are fundamentally helping us let go. Right? So it's, this, it's, it's a paradox. It really is this paradox because... Um, you know how the word cleave means to split something and it also means to hold on? It's, this, it's its own uh, antonym. Practice kind of works that way. Because what are we learning to do in practice? We, we attach to letting go until there's no more attachment left to burn. It's, it's gone. We use, similarly... The alphabet, we build on letters and the sounds that they make and the various strange rules that the letters put together in certain ways, they actually create words and those words create sentences and the sentence is structured in a certain way. And then those sentences lead to paragraphs, chunks of meaning, and then those paragraphs lead to chapters or whatever. You get where I'm going with this? But it's very rare that any of us in this room sounds out a word. It's become this flow this is exactly the way spiritual practice works at its best. It's the same type of thing. It becomes its own surrender. And that's when we can really kind of let it in. That's when the Dharma rain finally soaks through. And we are quite literally, uh, I mean, I hate this sounds so Christian in its imagery, but it's we are washed. We are, we, we are able to just kind of, oh, ah. Did I even address your question? <laughs> I think so, yes. Okay, let's pretend. <laughs> yes, ma'am. I'm trying to figure out how you can let go and at the same time um, preference also can be a motivator. Exactly, and this is similar. It sounds like to where Dave was going with his question. Preference can be a motivator, okay? Um, and so that's just like it takes ego. You are not going to awaken without ego getting you here in this seat. Ego is what got you here. The bizarre thing is that ego is what is actually walking the plank, right? It gets you here, and then, I mean, that image is so funny. It's like, you know, you're, the big self is actually... A pirate with a pet, get out of me, you know, that type of thing. And so what do you do? Ego kind of walks, that was weird, but anyway, ego, ego walks, walks off the plank and then jumps, but it doesn't fall. There's nothing for it to hit. There's no water for it to plunge into, and it's not going to get devoured by sharks. That practice begins to practice, uh, continual practice with diligence and fire 
actually begins to show us that. Yet, what do most of us take this work on? Most of us take this work on faith. Well, the, guy, the bald guy up at front, he seems to, sounds like he knows what he's talking about, so I, you know, it sounds good, may as well. Give it a shot, you know. <laughs> but it's quite, it's, it's quite true. We, 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 use, we use preferences to lose preferences. You know, we use the attachments to show us through them. We begin to witness ego as a way of disidentifying with ego. I hope at least one of those phrases hits somebody because that's really at the core of the work. It's, it's, it's bizarre. We use the alphabet to forget it. How many times did you crash on your bike before it just became this intuitive, oh, if I keep pedaling, the steering gets a lot easier. You know? It's, it's one of those things that begins to take hold. Now, that doesn't mean your skill as a cyclist can't be enhanced, even if you've been riding for years. And you can do this on your own, or you can awaken on your own. But just like it takes, it's a shortcut, if you will, to have a teacher show you how to hit the chords if you want to play piano beautifully. It's the same type of thing in spiritual work, where teachers actually, they act as shortcuts for us to be able to unleash what's always been within. The enormity of who we are. Hmm? Did I even answer your question? Yeah. Somewhat. Somewhat. Yes. Yes. Oh, mom. Yeah. Uh, when you say to let it go, mm-hmm. whatever go, it seems like you're not talking about. Sometimes the ego wants to say, well, I, I just don't care. I don't care anymore. Right. But if you say that, that's. Have you ever met an atheist that isn't obsessed with God? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Similarly, if we're in a space where it's like, oh, I'm not even going to deal with that. I'm just going to let it go. That's a great way for ego to hide very subtly behind rejection, which is just attachment to not that. Right? So attachment can mask itself as letting go if we're not really really aware of exactly what's going on this is why i keep hammering so often as it is or suzuki roshi said things plural as it singular is things as it is we're being very aware of exactly what's going on we witness exactly what's going on and instead of making a value judgment of i want more of that or i don't need any of that we instead just say, wow. And that allows us then to be very, very intimate with the things, not only that we just, uh, we bliss out over, as well as the things that make us want to pull our hair out, what's left of our hair out. Okay? And that's exactly where we want to be. We want to be in that hot fire. Weird, isn't it? Because what we want to do is be in that space, whether we like it, preference, or don't like it, preference. We want to be right there all the time. That's the active participation in life that the Dharma inspires in every single one of us. Stillness is actually what gives us the space 
around it so that it doesn't burn in quite the same way. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah that's really good, good. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Mm-hmm. Yes, Dee. So one of the things I've been sort of noticing or struggling with or, or looking at or whatever is that the more I sit, it's, it's not that I don't care. It's that it doesn't burn or something. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of disconcerting mm-hmm. in many ways. Especially if, if you're a burner. Yeah. You, if yeah. you spent a life as a burner. Yeah. And suddenly now you're cool. Out there, you know, maybe marching in the streets and, yes. and caring passionately about things. And it's not that I don't care anymore. It's just sort of like that I'm removed. The, and, and that's a, does it feel like the energy that you take to the streets is different than the energy you had before? Yeah. Does it feel like you're no longer at war with war? Yeah. <laughs> then it's working. This allows you to march in the streets as an authentic agent of peace, as opposed to an agent of peace that is at war with war and is actually just a warrior by another name. And so why does it feel like not me sometimes? (laughs) Because it's not the you you've always known. Now it's a you that is bursting into its own enormity, which means that it can love And that type of activist changes the world. The other kind of activist gets arrested. Both are fine. Both are necessary. It's just one is different. Okay? And so it's this is where this is where I go back to the point. It is disconcerting. This is like we're starting to inhabit a new skin. It's like the clothes feel so big. You know? It's kind of comfortable. I had no idea that I was so constricted. Now, are you the same person? Of course you are. Of course you're the same person. But the energy that you take into a quote-unquote fight is far different because it's not in opposition to anything. You're not in opposition to war. You're not at war with war. You're actually at peace with everything, including war. And this is how peace begins to infuse itself into and through war. This is how war, if you think about it, war is contracted, dense mass. Okay? Peace is open and effulgent space. Right? But even though I, okay, so I can say, okay, I care as much, it somehow feels like I don't or something. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because the language doesn't really work there, does it? It's like, how else am I going to describe it? And so I would say, instead of trying to qualify or quantify the words, become very intimate with that feeling. Because that feeling will guide your activism in really powerful ways. It can't help. It cannot help but guide your activism in powerful ways. That's how we, we all begin to affect change most powerfully from that place. And if you want, I mean, I could start rattling off names historically of people who were getting into that space and what happened to them. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, 
right? I mean, you go right down the list and they were in that space of, you know, that idea, that person is not my enemy. To carry it back to the 49ers perspective, Joe Walsh, the coach, greatest coach, football coach of all, as far as I'm concerned, I'm biased, but what he, what he would say is, they are not my enemy, they are my opponent. And when they are doing their job best, it inspires me to do mine. Right? That it was not an opposition, it was not, at, you were not at war with them. You didn't wish malice. Malice, the, the mass and density of malice no longer clouded the clarity of what it was that he was trying to do as a coach. And as a result, he was able to see through all sorts of defenses. We, you know, and I hate to like belabor the sports metaphor because it gets kind of boring for people, but it's like it, the same thing applies to us in our activism, whether it's, you know, active or whether it's kind of just, you know, armchair. How do we feel? And the way we feel as this practice begins to unfold shifts. And it is disconcerting. It's like, God, I don't feel that quite the same way. You know? Report back. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming tonight. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm.